Hi, this is Sav. This is Katie. And this is Michael from The Accidentals. And you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Michael Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, who gets paid for a stream? From Hypebot, Amazon Music to become the number two music streamer in the U.S. Apple Music, a distant number four. Also from Billboard, the changing world of radio promotion. And from Tony Van Veen at Disc Makers, there's a CD revival in the making. And yes, we are revisiting something we've talked about at least twice in terms of CDs. So we've got these stories. We've got a lot more banter and merriment with my friend Jay and myself. Sit back and relax because here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 For the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. My friend, it is so nice to see you on a Saturday for us. Good to Saturday see you, my friend. Record the show. It's a beautiful day. It is a beautiful day. Absolutely. We are going to be talking about the music business and a couple of really wonderful articles we're going to talk about. Uh, yeah. But before we get there, that was our good for your, more your friends than mine, but I'm a giant fan of the Accidentals. And uh, what a yeah. lovely song, Eastern Standard Time. Yeah, co-written. Um, by Peter Mulvey. Um, th- what's interesting about the timeout? It dropped on la- you know last Friday. It's timeout session two. It's their second EP in this timeout um, series, which is a series of co-writes um, from the band. You know the EP's first single, Eastern Standard Time, which we just played a, a part of. Like I said, was um, co-written with uh, Peter Mulvey. 
really inspired by Michigan's uh, Upper Peninsula, or UP, if mm-hmm. you're from the area. The uh, timeout session one had a single wildfire that you and I talked about. Um, that was co-written with Kim Ritchie. Um, and it went, that was named the number one song of the year by Folk Alliance. Uh, that was pretty cool. Um, so this is the second installment of their timeout project. And it features co-writes with Gretchen Peters, Beth Nielsen Chapman, Gary Burr, Tom Paxton, Maya Sharp, you know, uh, Georgia Middleman, and of course, Peter Mulvey. I had the uh, uh, pleasure of seeing Kim Ritchie, Beth Nielsen Chapman, uh, Katie Larson, and uh, Sav Beist uh, from the Accidentals play uh, the Bluebird Cafe when I was in Nashville last, mm. and they did a songwriter's yeah. night there. And it was just beautiful, and they've embarked on this tour uh, to kind of replicate that magic as well. But uh, thank you to uh, Michael, Sav, and Katie for the cool intro. Well, you know, what What, what I also really respect about them is, is the, and like a lot of artists now, they really continue to kind of mix it up, you know, just to kind of do a little different ingredients into a process of making an album. And it's it's refreshing. I'm sure artistically it's very rewarding to keep things, you know, kind of, changing not so static and yeah. that's really i think if when we talk about the difference between the new music business and our old music business when you and i started that's kind of really one of the hallmarks that i think about which is you know the collaboration and the ability and the interest in completely collaborating with different songwriters with different musicians with all kinds of stuff so it's really it's it's charming to see yeah. how creative they are with how they approach you know their different projects yeah i agree and and they do something that I've seen other artists do, but not everyone. And that is during the lockdown pandemic. And now as we're hopefully coming out of the pandemic, they never stopped moving. They never stopped writing, recording, live streaming, collaborating. And I've seen that with several artists over that time period who really made a lot of ground and grabbed a lot of uh, new fans and grew their audience and grew their engagement um, we, we saw a couple of artists that kind of gave up and shut down. And look, you can't fault them for that. It's been difficult for all of us. But mm-hmm. you got to hand it to the people who said, no, uh, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and uh, get at it. And I appreciate that. And take advantage. Take advantage of the time. Absolutely. Right. And for a right. lot of artists, it's the first time they've had considerable downtime, maybe in their career, you know, because... You're always, you know, looking at the next record, the next tour, the next whatever, and uh, yeah, they they took advantage of this of the situation, which is great. Yeah. By the way, the guy that I speak with every, oh, actually more than every weekend, certainly, but uh, <laughs> he's my longtime friend, Jake. Yeah. He's the co-founder of label and artist services company Label Logic. He's the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal, Sony, and Warner Music Groups. And a damn handsome man. Oh, thank you so much. And the gentleman that I get to share this uh, microphone with is uh, my longtime friend, Mike Etchart, uh, former host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music. That's almost everybody in the business <laughs> that you've had some kind of contact with. But uh, <laughs> Both of us. You yeah. Know, it's like, well, we're old. You know, We've been around a little while, so... Yeah, exactly. And by the way, we are certainly appreciative, but besides I, I'm appreciative not only of having get to, getting to do this with Jay every week, but also the wonderful sponsors that help us put the show on, and Q, including the Music Business Association. The four-day Music Biz 2022 conference agenda has just been announced, taking place in, uh, in May, May, 12th, May 9th through the 12th at the JW Marriott in Nashville. 
along with returning favorites like the Metadata Summit, hashtag NextGenNow, DSP Workshops, and Brand Summit. To name just a few, you'll find timely new additions for the 2022 uh, conf- uh conference, including conversations on NFTs, gaming, and immersive music experiences, catalog acquisitions, and much, much more. You can jump over to musicbiz.org to get the skinny yeah. on that event, which is yeah. fantastic. Can't wait. I'll be there. Um, your Morning Coffee podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. I'm actually building a new one this week, uh, Mike, that I will share with you. They have so many cool, mm. cool templates over there that you can use. You don't have to know how to code or any of that stuff. It's all kind of dra- drag and drop um, templates and they're awesome. So these features we're talking about, everything is really built in. Hosting, custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable des- design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days. Just use a promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word. That'll get you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. And we are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is, it, it is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton. With help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yes, sir. Speaking of Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform, connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Indeed. So big thanks to the Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Boy, big thanks. Big, big, big thanks. We appreciate it. We certainly do. So, Jay, let us jump into... The plethora of cool things we are going to talk about today. Our first article is from Billboard. Who gets paid for a stream? Mm. Oh, boy. And, you know, again, we talk all the time about this. The wonderful amount of great information that is out there for artists to really kind of get the story of what's happening. And uh, this is a great article by our friend Glenn Peoples. Yeah. Keeping it real over there at Billboard. Yeah, Glenn's the best. Um, And what I love about this piece is it just kind of pulls everything together because as much as we talk about um, the economics of streaming, there still is a lot of confusion. And I answer questions yep. every week about it and it's, it's nuanced and, and it's, well, it's evolving and changing, but there's some things that, you know, and we'll get into this a little bit about who gets paid and why. And th- what I love about this is, you know, he kicks it off by saying that, you know, over a trillion times a year, Somebody streams a song in the United States. Now, we're just talking about the U.S. for a lot of this. And that sets in motion um, a process of paying royalties to the rights holders. And that's key, the rights holders Mm -hmm. um, and creators responsible for the music. Each individual payment is minute, you know, usually less than a cent. But for popular songs, royalties can add up to millions and millions of dollars, you know. And he uses the example of, you know, Dua Lipa, for example, 
But here's where we we kind of dig in. You know, both the sound recording and its underlying musical work receive royalties paid from the DSP. And I think even for people in the industry, that's um, it's one of those things that it's not it's not easily understood for a lot of folks that you're there's the master and then there's the musical work itself. And, you know, you and I've talked about that kind of analogy of it's like the blueprint to a house. You know, that sheet music is like the blueprint. Anybody can take that and build a house and uh, Mm -hmm. you know, but there's only that one original house, you know, that song by the Beatles I can record yesterday, but there's only the one, you know, that's the master. That's the Paul McCartney singing or, you know, the Beatles singing. Uh, yeah, exactly. And as we've talked about, you know, they are, especially in our ear, a little bit less so now, but they were two distinct, even within the same company, they were two distinct universes, the music publishing side of things and the recorded music side of things. So it's, and, and that has always been the case with even back, going back to vinyl days is, you know, the artist is getting paid on both and um, or or somebody is getting paid on both, I should say. Sometimes the artist, not necessarily the artist. And so, um, it is interesting to to you know even people within the business, as we were saying, didn't you know when we worked on the recorded music side, I knew a couple of people over publishing, but that was it. And you know it was just like a different a country. Yeah. <laughs> even as the same com- even as the same company. Yeah, and you brought so, up something that I thought was really interesting and that is that back in the old days, you know, back mm-hmm. when, you know, Frank Sinatra or Elvis, you know, when you came from the um really in the 50s and early 60s, A&R took on a different meaning, right? And you pointed this out yeah. that uh, a lot of those artists were not writing their own songs. Even the early Beatles no. had a bunch of covers on their, you know, their early records. And it wasn't until that evolved into artists actually recording their own songs primarily. But now it feels like we're going back in time where there's people are um, recording songs from other songwriters, other producers, multiple multiple co-writes. That's easy for you to say. So it's interesting to see how this is evolving. But you need to understand that, you know, um, typically record labels collect and pay the you know the recording artists from their share of the royalties right publishers mm-hmm. collect and pay songwriters uh what's called a mechanical royalty that represents the musical work that we just talked to, talked about embedded in a copy of a recording uh, roughly around 10 percent right now um and then the pro's performance rights organizations are paid performance royalties as they receive royalties when a song is played on you know uh the radio Um, retail store, concert, you know, and then it evenly splits publisher and songwriter um, after taking a small fee. So if you look at a lot of this stuff, it can be really nuanced and confusing for someone outside of the industry. It's like, no, wait a second. I get, if it's performed live, I get it. And if it's performed on the radio, like you and I talk about all the time, you know, maybe the songwriter will uh, participate in that revenue, but not the performer, at least in the U S right. Yeah, exactly. I can see why there's so much confusion surrounding this, but I think the bottom line with a lot of this is that the, the DSPs aren't necessarily the bad guys here that they're actually paying out, you know, a majority of the revenue that they're, uh, they're bringing in. 
Well, and we can you can have the discussion by saying, well, that the amount they're keeping is maybe a little excessive or maybe uh, more than they should. But by and large, they are paying out a lot of dollars. And as we've talked about a number of times on the show, it has completely changed the way the business operates in terms it used to be seasonal. It was, you can't say that enough times. It was yeah. seasonal. You rolled out your hits in the, because, well, and, and I worked for an independent label at the beginning, so it wasn't quite the same pressure. But, you know, when you're a publicly traded company, uh, you have to show profits. And that is, you show profits in the music business if you're a publicly traded company by having hits. And if you have hits, you brought them out in the fourth quarter, typically. And why? Because everybody was in the stores. It was a physical That's thing, right. right? You were going to Tower yes. Records and Warehouse and Musicland and Camelot and Sam Goody or whatever. All those people were shopping. And, you know, I worked at Tower Records. I worked at an indie. And I remember those fourth quarters and we had everybody, you know, all hands on deck and we had lineups yes. and we we made a majority of our revenue in Q4. And of course, to your point, that's when they put out not only those big blockbuster releases, but box sets and greatest hits. Mm -hmm. Right. Because mm -hmm. and some of that's carried over to the streaming world. Still, I'm on calls where people are talking about their Q4 releases. And I think it's a little bit different in that people are thinking, OK, People will be shopping for the holidays, and maybe that makes sense for physical goods. Um, but then also, there's gift cards that are given mm -hmm. out, and so right after the holidays, you know, someone may have a new device, a tablet, a phone, a, you know, music player, whatever it is, a turntable, and so there's kind of that second bite at the apple. But you're right; that Q4 is just ingrained in the music industry psyche. Yes, and just not necessarily like it was before. And I wanted to mention a couple of things about mechanical royalties. So again, mechanical royalties are the publishing that was paid to when an, when in the old days when an album was sold. And somebody pointed out to me a long time, when I first got in the business, like if you look at Bob Dylan's catalog, you will note that every album has 10 songs, only 10 songs, not 11, not nine, but 10 songs. And <laughs> Bob Dylan at the time had a, a manager named Albert Grossman who very much understood music publishing. Cutting edge. Well before most people did. And um, the reason that he has 10 on almost every one of his records is because in those days, the, the major labels said, we will only pay mechanical royalties on 10 songs. And so to maximize his publishing but not give too much away, he put 10 songs exactly on, on most of his albums. And the other thing I wanted to mention, when we talk about songwriters and... You know, if you're a baseball fan, and, and even before the time I was a baseball fan, most pitchers kind of went the entire distance. Then the then the relief pitcher came in, and now we have super specialized people in baseball that are middle relievers and late closers and all that stuff. In songwriting, you know, it used to when 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 the things changed, when A and R used to mean artisan repertoire instead of artisan restaurants, and <laughs> the the A and R guy would bring yeah. in songs for the artist to record yeah. that that they clearly did not write, and then the Beatles changed everything, but the Beatles were still Lennon and McCartney, really just one or the other, but but they had done that original publishing deal. So, but now you see the the specialization of songwriting, and so when you talk about a lot of these multiple. Uh, multiple people involved in the publishing. They have people that are just specialized in choruses, that specialize in hooks, that specialize in beats. 
all of these people are getting a piece of that 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 a little amount of money. That's a great so the publishing point. sprit yeah. is he's and and Glenn talks about it a little bit in the in the article, which is it's just changed dramatically. If so many more people on the publishing side getting a piece of the pie because yeah. of the way songs are crafted now, especially in the pop world, yeah, and in the in hip hop as well. Yeah, there was an old joke in in Nashville, you know, change a word, get a third, <laughs> but but that's that's <laughs> not the case so much anymore. It's really what you just alluded to. And, and keep in mind when you look at, I think we need to do it again, but we looked at the Hot 100 last year and the average number of co-writes was north of four. It was like four and a half or something. That's a lot yeah. of co-writes. That's a lot yes, of publishing splits. And then you have to figure out, well, to your point, what is that split? Is the chorus guy getting 25%? Is he getting 10%? Mm-hmm. Are they splitting it evenly? So it, it adds a lot of complications um, most streaming revenue, by the way, comes from those subscription fees. You know, in simple terms, the DSPs divvy their pools of subscription revenue according to the number of times a tract was streamed in a particular month. So there's a pool for that mm-hmm. month, right? Now, DSPs with freemium, you know, ad-supported business models like you know, Spotify, YouTube, Pandora, SoundCloud, you know, they also pay rights holders a share of the advertising revenues. But of course, you know, like Apple doesn't have that. You know, there are a lot of DSPs that don't have that ad supported um, tier, but that pays out a much lower rate, you know, but once the royalties are calculated, a DSP makes separate payments to the record labels um, for those sound recordings and to publishers and PROs for their musical work. And Glenn puts a really cool chart in here um, that will show you, um, you know, just every kind of that trickle down economics about that, uh, the payouts once the DSP is paid, right? The royalty rates differ from stream to stream because record labels negotiate better rates than others, right? Um, And exactly how record labels royalties are calculated is hidden behind an opaque process of non-disclosure agreements, according to Glenn. Um, This frustrates some artists and labels who feel disadvantaged by an uneven playing field. But it's not as simple as saying you get a third of a penny for a stream. It really depends on how many streams happened that month and how many users were streaming it. I wish it was that simple, but we talk about the user-centric model where if I listen to the accidentals all month and nothing else, shouldn't they get my 10 bucks or should Dua Lipa get some of that because she had a ton of plays. So we're kind of in our infancy here, but we're as an industry, we're looking at all of these different models. Well, and, and one of the things that this, this article really highlights is the complicated process of paying out to all these different entities. Now, I, 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 would, I would say that, that Spotify is, or, or, and the DSPs are fairly generous in what they keep. You know, they, they you know, roughly 25% call it. Um, but they've got a lot of back, back office stuff to do. And it's, of course, automated, but it's, putting that data in is so complex. And, you know, you forget, too, that publishing companies trade and, and are sold and purchased, and there's just so much to keep track of. And, and again, the thing that, that I think so many artists get frustrated with, and rightly so, which is there's just a lot of moving parts. It's not as easy to calculate as it was when it was physical oh, sales. right. It's just, right. Yeah. And so, you, you know, it, it's... It's, everybody's got a hard job to do in this in this equation because it's so much data to collect and disperse money. And, you know, again, you're talking fractions of pennies, but it adds up. And it, yeah. pretty soon you're talking for some pretty serious money. But that's really, I, I, you can see when you read the article, 
all the moving parts, and then you can also really understand the frustration of people. It's really hard to simplify in terms of the explanation of how it works. Yeah. Super hard. Yeah. And it, it, and it floats, and it's a moving target. Yeah, and you make a really good point about the way it used to be or the way that it is now with physical formats. You know, uh, Glenn points out that for sales of CDs, vinyl, and downloads, the record label collects money from its distributor and pays recording artists based on the terms of the recording contract. Simple. You know, when the artist owes a label for expenses that have not been recouped, you know, if you get an advance, any royalties will reduce that negative balance until you're recouped, right? Um, When the artist is no longer in arrears, uh, the label cuts a royalty check to the artist. Music publishers are owed a mechanical royalty for each copy of that musical work, like every CD, you know, every... uh, um, downloaded album or vinyl, whether it's physical or digital. Currently, the standard rate, of course, is 9.1 cents uh, per track. So that used to be so cut and dry, so easy. So yeah. um, I'm looking at this chart, and of course, this is audio, so our audience can't see this chart. But if you see the article, and I think you have to subscribe to Billboard Pro to to actually see it. Um, but we'll tell you about it here. It starts off with total stream uh, value, right? And this is after the DSP takes their roughly between 20 and 25%. That what's left, you know, you've got, you know, uh, 80% of that, you know, is going to the the label and and the artist. And that, again, that depends, you know, if the label is a rights holder and the, and the artist isn't going through CD Baby, DistroKid, TuneCore, where they are basically the rights holder. So we're just assuming for the sake of this chart that you're signed with a label and the label, you're recouped with that label. And typically that um, royalty is between like 15 and 25%. But for the sake of this, we're going to put 16%. You know, and then on the other side of it, you've got you know, mechanicals, you know, which is for the publishers. And then of course they pay, um, the songwriters and then in the middle of it, the, the PROs, you know, the performance rights organizations. And so when you look at this chart, there's a lot of mouths to feed, you know, from, yes, from a song. That's a it's, good way of saying it's it. surprising. Yes. Yes, absolutely. There are a lot of mouths to feed and none of them are getting a ton of food. I mean, it, it is, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the numbers. I guess that's the best way of saying it. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the, uh, the, the mechanical royalties hopefully changing for the better for artists, um, but also the pushback that the DSPs are, are, are jumping in with. And so it's a, a very, um, uh, it's a dynamic part of the business as how yeah. money gets paid and yeah. it's changing and you need to keep paying attention to it because yeah. it's a lot of money. It's yeah. a lot of little dinky pennies, but boy, it's a lot of money. In yeah. The, in the, it, uh, it adds up. The right. And we'll be talking yeah. about, um, you know, the copyright royalty board and some of these, um, topics yep. that you and I cover every week because it's evolving, it's dynamic, it's changing. So all these percentages in this article, um, could be changing. Um, and just just to put a fine point on this before we move on, uh, Glenn put this really cool glossary at the end of it to explain yes. to people, you know, who don't know what some of these terms are. Um, and don't feel stupid if you don't know what some of these things are. There's so many acronyms and abbreviations and things in the music industry. And, you know, it's like my grandfather said, you know, an idiot is someone who doesn't know what you just found out. Well, we're just finding out a lot of these things. But he goes into this glossary of like, what is a DSP? What is a PRO? You know, 
he defines what a mechanical royalty is and writer's share and publisher share. So, you know, if you don't know what all these things are, you know, don't, don't feel stupid about it. Just, you know, subscribe to billboard pro. And, you know, this is one of those that you might want to print out because it's got some really good information, but I would just tell you that, um, this is evolving and changing and in the coming months, it, it could be different. Exactly. Exactly. Great article from Glenn. Thank and you, Glenn. Uh, again, a wonderful resource for anybody that, uh, which is everybody in the music business, basically, if you're involved with streaming. Um, speaking of the DSPs, let's jump over to this next article from Hypebot and our friend Bruce Houghton. Uh, Amazon Music to become the number two music streamer in the US. Wow. And Apple Music is kind of well back at number four. Um, as he starts, he says, With Spot- while Spotify continues to dominate, Amazon Music is on track to pass Pandora to become the number two music streamer in the U.S., uh, with Apple Music at fourth. By the end of 2022, Amazon Music will have 52.6 million U.S. users, which is up about five, a little over 5% uh, from last year. By contrast, Pandora's user base will decline this year by 6.7% to 49.1 million Interestingly, Pandora has been steadily losing U.S. users since 2017, but its steepest decline came last year when it lost about 11%, according to new insider intelligence study. And yeah. um, but we, and every time I read these things, I I hear your voice in my head, Jay, because <laughs> oh no, you you we're talking about number one and number two, but we for, always forget about YouTube in these conversations, don't we? Yeah. They are really the number one. Yeah, it's not apples and oranges, so to speak, but it it is the number one music destination platform for, yeah, for, for sure. music absolutely. streaming. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I don't. He doesn't. He get, doesn't get into it, but too much in there. But I'm I'm not quite sure why Pandora's use user base continues to decline. Yeah, um, I it, I find that surprising too because it's well, it's still a beast, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's still got you know 49 million people. That's not nothing. Um, yes, correct. And until Amazon passes it later in the year, it still is number two um, next to yeah. Spotify if we're not talking about YouTube. And it's they're doing some really cool innovations there, and they're built on music discovery that's really cutting edge. You know, the Music Genome Project, and they were way ahead of everybody else. And another thing, like for all of our releases, I do a Pandora Stories, which is basically a track by track interview with the music that's already on their um, on their site, their platform. And those things are absolutely wonderful for people to get into uh, an artist. And there are a lot of people that use um, Spotify, I'm sorry, um, um, Pandora at work. And I'm wondering if that's hurt them a little bit. And then conversely, um, voice has really helped um, Amazon. Um, because of yes. the device that shall not be named because I'm surrounded by them. But it makes it so easy for someone to just say, hey, play this. And I think yeah. that's really helped them grow. Plus, you know, I used to um, work for WIA ADA. And for about five years, I managed um, Amazon's business. So I had regular meetings with them and got to know the team and see how the sausage is made. I can tell you that they quietly in the background were working very hard, just like Google, on a lot of different things, and not everything stuck. You know, they tried their own mm-hmm. phone, for example, and they've, they've done a lot of things. But what I love about them is they've been innovating, and they took voice, 
and have taken it to uh, another level. And now it's a big part of music discovery on that platform. Well, and the, of course, don't forget the also interesting thing about Amazon is that if you are an Amazon Prime member, you get Amazon Music. So, you know, when, whenever we talk about all of these things, you know, you almost, there's so many asterisks that we ha- kind of have to mention. And, and, of course, don't forget, so Apple Music is, a, is number four, but Apple Music uh, doesn't have any uh, and no ad-supported free service. So, okay, that's okay. Let me move that over here. There's a little asterisk by that statement. And, and you don't get it free when you have Amazon Prime or an equivalent, right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. So Amazon leverages their Prime services to give you their their uh, television and their music services as well, which I love and I and I and I in, in consume <laughs> for sure. But all of these things, you know, you kind of have to peel back a little bit to kind of look at it and say, okay, oh, okay, wait a minute, okay, that's a little different than that's the other thing. But it still shows that Amazon is is. Is, is on the move. Yeah. They are doing really well. Yeah, and Spotify continues to grow, just not at the fast rate that they were before. You know, by the end of this year, Spotify is projected to have about 89 million users in the U.S. We're ta- this, is, this article is U.S.-centric, and that's up yeah. about 7%. Um, and it's really their first year of just single growth, or single-digit growth, um, according to uh, insider intelligence studies. So that's interesting. So it's slowed a little bit. Clearly, there's some competition with voice and markets are maturing. But if you look up the numbers, like globally, even though this article is really more about U.S., globally, um, around the middle of last year, there were about 524 million paid subscribers, which is massive. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm so impressed with how this has grown over the last few years. Um, Spotify had about a third of the worldwide market, right around 33%. And I, I think that as things mature and we get into some of these markets where streaming isn't as popular um, right now, um, yes, the growth is going to eventually slow and that pie is going to move around. And one of the things I wanted to kind of run by you is I, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about like what differentiates a DSP from another? Like why would you subscribe to Spotify instead of Deezer or Apple Music or Amazon Music or whatever? And we were we were kind of looking at today, there's not a lot of difference between a lot right. of them. Um, they all kind of have the new, new releases. A lot of them curate pretty well. Um, they're available on portable devices. Um, but I made a list of some things like the DSP of the future. <laughs> You know, like mm-hmm. what what could differentiate one from another? And I'll, and I'll run these by you and you can tell me what you think and if you have any put any input. Um, first of all, podcast, which is already a thing. You know, Apple was the leading um, platform for podcasts and uh, Spotify overtook them on that video, which is still, I think, in its infancy when it gets to DSPs. Yes, there's video there, but it's. I just think that it's not being fully utilized. And then we talked recently about merch, you know, where um, Spotify is teamed up with Shopify, for example. But again, that's new. Um, There aren't a lot of really robust offerings for merch experiences, tickets, things like that on the DSPs. So I think there's some uh, room for improvement there for the DSP of the future. Um, Social media has been tried many times with, um, you know, Apple tried it. What was it called? Ping. Um, uh, other DSPs have tried to integrate socials, but I think that 
music is a social thing and someone's going to get it right where you can belong to a community around a certain genre, mood, lifestyle. Um, I feel like there's a lot of uh, room for improvement there. And then the last thing is, you know, something we talked about last week, which is web 3.0 NFTs, DAOs, tokens, things Mm -hmm. like that. It just seems, you know, streaming is, pretty virtual right you're not you don't have that tactile thing i just feel like that web 3.0 would be uh perfect for that but that's kind of my my take on the dsp of the future (laughs) yeah well we we will see because it is like you said it's completely evolving and and if history is a guide there's probably going to be something that we can't we have no we can't fathom right now that's going to come out of the woodwork for sure and and everyone's going to slap the side of there and go, why didn't I think of that? But it'll be something. And it, we also have seen, this, especially this last year, the, the, um, the vulnerability of Spotify in terms of, you know, kind of put artist pushbacks and things like that. And, you know, we, I think we've mentioned it a couple of times on different programs that, you know, the, the Amazons of the world, the Apples of the world are not nearly as sensitive to those sort of things because this is a side business for them. For Spotify... For SoundCloud, other places, that's this is all they do. They've got nothing to fall back on. So will Spotify someday be purchased by another larger company? Who knows? So yeah. there's a lot of lurking things that could be um, could play a part in what the DSP of the future is that we can't foresee. It's it's, it's the future is not terribly clear sometimes for yeah. things like that. But yeah. it's a wonderful time to you know to be a consumer and. You know, we've we have I've again talked so many times about you know I, when being in college or as young people, the, you would carry your albums around and then you would carry your CDs around. And I still have crates of CDs in my garage. They're heavy. And you ever try to lift one heavy. of those things? I could tell you that <laughs> they get heavier by the year. Yeah. And um, you know, I mean, our our kids' generation, young people's young people now that are music consumers don't really realize how fortunate they are. You, you, you don't need to do all that, and you have most of the world's music in, in your device, in your pocket. Yeah, I and wonder how passionate um, fans are um, about music if they're not having like a physical counterpart. And I'm sure they are, because I see it, you know, the BTS Army, for example. I see fans, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with that level of support. But I wonder how deep it is and how long it's going to last, because one of the things that you... When you're out having that physical, whether it's merch, whether it's vinyl, CD, and you have that that thing that you get signed at the merch table, and I don't know, to me that's a different experience. It's you know, it's the argument of do you want access, which is really the new music business is access, or or do you want that product, you know? And I think it's kind of a healthy mix uh, between the two right now. But I think the DSP of the future is going to not ignore. Um, that physical and merch side that it's still going to be, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't mean that you flip a switch and it just all goes to one side. Yep. Many components. So, all right, fun stuff. Let's, let's jump to the next article. And, and I'm going to, I feel we need to do kind of our, our old guy review of what it used to be like too for this. So this is from Billboard. A fascinating article, The Changing World of Radio Promotion. And, you know, Jay and I, we speak a lot about when SoundScan came in and how that completely changed the business. Before SoundScan, it was reporting. So you would call, the, the labels would call, or the billboard would call the stores that were reporting stores. And the same really for radio promotion. It was reported by the stations prior to 
a wonderful invention called BDS, Broadcast Data Systems, yep. now owned by Nielsen. And that came in just a year after um, uh, after uh, SoundScan did. So 1992, 30 years ago, BDS came into effect. Prior to that, when you were at a label, and that was the early days for me and the business, um, you know, they would report how many times they were playing a record. And the, the old joke was it was in lunar rotation, meaning it was, yes, they were playing it, but it was two in the morning. Oh. Overnight. And so yeah. you overnight you didn't have any idea really but you were always trying to get those radio ads <laughs> and then suddenly the technology comes out which is BDS and now suddenly there there is no BSing the system there is only data that says uh, yeah we did play that song we played it at three in the morning once however we were spinning it heavily in rotation at two in the afternoon on you know so you suddenly had this plethora of information and it changed the business much the way SoundScan did right. Yeah. Yeah, and so now, yeah. and the, so now we're going to talk about the changing world of radio promotion because everything has changed, and it's 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 fascinating to read. Yeah, it's it's what we've thought of um, that it's so data driven. It used to be that streaming services in the early days would look to radio playlists, and that quickly flipped to where radio stations are looking at what is streaming and in what markets. That's right, and but it isn't all or nothing. Um, like everything, um, they talk yeah. about, and one of the things we'll go through in this article is, you know, they have seven um, of these um, radio promotion people who talk about this new music business, and it's really fascinating to get their take on it. But it's not just looking at the data, and I think it's easy to assume that the new way to do things is just look at TikTok and see what's blowing up. Look at local radio stations and see what's unsigned that may be, you know, uh, blowing up, you know, looking for new talent, that sort of thing, especially on the A&R side. Um, but, you know, as uh, Lionel Ridenour, um, he used to be with uh, Capital Arista and Virgin, he says that there was a time when radio was a leader out of everything. You put it on the radio, yeah. sales would follow, marketing would follow, so on and so forth. And he said, now that's that's kind of changed. You know, now that we ha we take our cues from streaming or ticket sales or something breaking on TikTok, other sources now, and then we do what we do. So I think it's kind of a combination of the two. And I think the smart radio promotion people um, look at all of the data. But something that really jumped out of this article for me is how important relationships still are. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it's always been that way. And when I worked at a, a couple of different labels, the joke always was, what was it? Uh, Steaks and snow tires. You know, you would you would call the radio guy up and ask him what he needs. You know, what do you need? And that relationship. And so there was always kind of a back and forth of, of tchotchkes and gifts and access. Um, but they talk, of course, in the article about how important it is to, to bring artists into these radio stations and develop it. And in, in the early, in, in our first era of, of, um, of working at labels, you know, the, the, the process at radio was typically sort of like a, like a pyramid. So you would start at smaller formats and hopefully have success at those formats and then move it up the chain to the next big format up. So you know, that, that was always kind of the way you do it. What I found interesting about the article, is, and in, in our day, you kind of made that climb, and then it, it either kept going to number one and pop, or it didn't, but it, somewhere it stalled, and then it would just kind of go down, and that was the life cycle of a, of a hit single, right? 
not so anymore. And that's what's really interesting is they, you, they get sometimes you can get several bites at the apple. And that's another kind of aspect they talk about in this article. Yeah. It's like, yes, we kind of went up, but then sometimes things will blow up on TikTok. Some things will. And then they'll suddenly it's back. And that occasionally happens, but much. very rarely. That was not much. You make a great point because that was that's the way it worked for decades. And you didn't yes. have a second bite at the apple unless somebody no. maybe passed away, you know, or there was some weird circumstance. But they used the the example of glass animals releasing heat waves in June. You know, the band, uh, you know, was on uh, or is on Republic. You know, they worked the song to alternative radio, you know, and top 40, hot AC. And, and for a while, you know, that tactic works. You know, the song hit number one on Billboard's alternative chart in March 2021 and began climbing the pop airplay and adult pop airplay charts at the same time. But by July, the song had kind of run out of steam, having reached the top 20 on both pop airplay charts before falling off. Now, to your point, this is where it becomes interesting. In the old music industry, that would have been the end of the story and they'd be moving on to another track whatever but um in this article it says uh, soon fate and new metrics intervened you know towards the yes. end of august the song began to explode on tiktok thanks to the hashtag all i think about is you challenge which in turn meant it rocketed up billboard's consumption-based charts reaching number one on hot rock and alternative songs in mid-September. By the first week of November, heat waves had again cracked both pop airplay charts, eventually reaching number one on each last month. Roughly 81 weeks, get that, 81 weeks yeah. after its initial release. That's crazy. This would never have happened in the past and was actually only the second time in chart history that it happened. That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, and as, as the article says, such is the life of a label promotion person in recent years, constantly reacting to changing metrics and new data from many more sources than had been available just five or even ten years ago. In the past, a radio campaign for a lead single would herald the release of an, of an artist's album with promotions people going market by market to convince individual program directors and DJs to add particular records to a playlist ahead of an album's release to try to drum up sales yeah. interest. Today, however, radio campaigns are much more variable with data from streaming and social media often fueling what gets work to radio rather than vice versa, which is a yeah. sea change yeah. of the way it used to be. But yet, having said that, there's some things that never change. And yeah. I, I, I really want to put a, you know, a highlighter or a fine point on this. You know, they talk about how hitting the road, you know, both to visit programmers uh, in particular markets and to bring your young developing artists to meet those programmers at these radio stations, play the music, perform in studio concerts, you know, or broadcast live, you know, those types of things. Um, Kevin uh, Valenti, uh, Valentini, I'm sorry, senior VP of promotions at RCA said, when we were first rolling out Doja Cat, um, I was in the rental car driving her to Oklahoma City, Providence, Boston, Hartford, all the markets building up that relationship between the artist and radio. You know, so he helped Doja uh, get to five number one records on Billboard's rhythmic radio chart. He said, you know, for radio, that's what's most special to them. They feel like they're included. They're part of the growth in, uh, of these artists and they help break them. And I think that the more we rely on data, the more we uh, look at streaming um, to drive these decisions at radio, it's still all about, you know, relationships and follow through yes. and what's old is new again. And, 
you know, in the interest of time, I mean, we could spend hours on this this article, but I think it's really summed up perfectly because I want to make sure we have enough time to get to this Tony Van Veen piece. Um, mm -hmm. It's summed up near the end of the article. And again, this is in Billboard Pro. Um, it, the he the subheadline is, what makes a song a good fit for radio? And let, let's, let's go through what these seven radio promotion people say. What makes a song a fit for radio? Yeah, exactly. So first we've got uh, Samantha Brenner. She says, local metrics is one of the factors. Research is another. But how it sounds on the radio is a big factor, too. And having programmers be excited about a song, it starts with the song. But having radio feel a genuine connection with the artist, as well as their audience feeling connected with the artist, that is everything. Brilliant. And Tyson Holler said it has to fit the station. I think every station has their own personality and their own place in the market, and you need to make sure that you're representing them with something that you think will work for them and their audience. It can also be something that we already have, uh, you know, seeing a presence in the market, whether it be by sales, streaming, or Shazam searches. An artist tour schedule can also have an effect. Yeah, Nick Petropoulos said, does the song have the potential to reach the widest audience possible? And is it exciting? That doesn't mean it has to be up-tempo. Um, he said, like, uh, um, well, like a track your last year, Heartbreak Anniversary, to me, that was an exciting song, a voice that really stood out. Uh, one of the things, too, I would like to throw in here is don't forget, you know, in our day, Jay, there were so many more stations and that, that had a freedom to, to play their playlist the way they did. Yeah. We have since, ha now we have radio consolidation, so Good there's point. far fewer people that are yeah. being hit up by these promotion people. And that really ratchets up the pressure on the promotion department. Tremendous. Because, yeah, yeah it's it's hard. Yeah. It is it, really hard. It really is. And uh, uh, Lionel Ridenauer says, I think what makes a good song for radio is one that connects directly with their female audiences. Research that radio lives by is female first at its core. And speaking of females, the article mentions somewhere else that in our day, and this is true, there were very few women in the promotions department. And somebody in the article points out now that it might be as high as 65% yeah. women that are, that are in the promotion department, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Lucas Romeo says, there's no real formula for what makes a record a hit, but programmers will tell you that tempo never hurts. Honestly, I think what makes something fit best is when the feedback from programmers matches that of the data coming from the audience. Yeah, that's right. So those are always the biggest records. Yeah, and Kevin Valentini said the traditional answer would probably be research, um, but now the rise of TikTok and streaming numbers, we tend to follow these metrics as well. We've had markets that weren't playing a song on radio but was a top five Shazam record in the market. So when a programmer sees that, they're like, wait, no one on radio in this market is playing that, but it's top five in Shazam's. You kind of have to start playing that record. Yeah, exactly. God, I love Shazam. And then Kristen Williams says, I'd like to say I have the answer, but that's certainly not a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to a hit, and I think that's important to realize. You can feel it in your bones when you hear a song and just know it's going to be a hit. We've talked about, is it tempo It drives a hit? Well, some of the biggest songs in our format are ballads. Is it a strong hook? Well, that certainly helps, but at the end of the day, I really don't believe that there is one true equa equation that determines what a hit is. Amen. And that right there sums it up because yeah. if there were, we would all be doing it, right? Yeah. And yeah. so uh, yeah. it makes it fun that that isn't the case, but it also makes it a challenge. And 
you know, again, in, in when you come to marketing and artist development, we try to templatize things. Yeah. And as, as you and I have spoken about a number of times since we started this podcast, it was much easier in our early days. There were there was very identifiable silos that you that you hit. Whether it was it was you know radio advertising and print advertising things like that. There's so many more aspects now to artist yeah. development and and getting things on the radio that just make it much more yeah. challenging. Yeah. But uh, all right, good for everyone that that's still doing it out there. So in our last one, yeah. we've talked about this a few times. Yeah, Jay. but this is a little bit different take, and that's it why um, I put it in your morning coffee. And you know, I, I have a lot of respect uh, and admiration for Tony Van Veen. For those that don't know, he runs uh, Disc Makers, and this is a post on the Disc Makers blog. And if you don't know what Disc Makers is, if you're let's say, well, you don't even have to be an indie; you can be you know any label. Um, but or just any artist, if you want to have physical things made up, you know, CDs, vinyl, flash drives. Yeah, that's still a thing. You know, lots of these things you, you go see disc makers and they'll do short, small runs for developing artists as well as um, big runs. We use them a lot. And Tony's been on uh, on my other podcast and we've had conversations and I read this piece. And what I loved about this is that we've we've been talking about physical stuff physical music in the last couple of months because um there's all these reports of how you know it's it's rebounding and you know then some people came back and said well that's that's just Adele and you know it's really not if you take that out and you know it's Mm -hmm. really kind of maintaining um but Tony kind of digs in and he knows this world better than most people so um, he says there's a CD revival in the making. CD sales are up for the first time in a decade, and we take a dive into the DIY, do-it-yourself, uh, market to explore the details of what's being hailed as a CD revival. And I just kind of wanted to walk through some of these things with you because he thinks that there's a, a little more to this than just Adele. Yes. Well, and he, of course, is making the things. So he's got a pretty good purview of what's happening. And he breaks it down really interestingly. And and certainly one of the things he mentioned is that unsigned artists represent 20, 22% of all CDs sold in the U.S. But don't forget, a lot of CDs that are manufactured are not even in SoundScan. And so that is a huge thing. And, and even in well, our day... Well, let's talk day, about that just for a second. Yeah. Because you make a, yeah, a, ahead, a sure. really great point that I want people to you know, sort of understand, like, what do you mean? Like, why wouldn't they be on SoundScan, right? Right. So if you're self-releasing a record, it, you have to proactively get your thing, your your CD to, to be reported to SoundScan. Right. And it's, it's not really worth it if you're an independent artist. What's the point? You know, you want to sell these at your shows or, or you know, you want to... You want to have a have your fans buy them, but but that's a direct transaction. It's really hard. It to can get stuff be in stores. And let me just interject yes. that you are absolutely right. That I think a majority of these things sold on the road are not captured for SoundScan, and I know artists that do that by design. Um, yes, you know for financial reasons. Um, but exactly. I will tell you, there's an app that you can download called At Venue, and a lot of artists, you know, they keep track of their sales on the road with that, yes. and they are registered. You know. And then they can qualify for the charts and for those numbers and people can keep track of them. But you are 100% right. It says that unsigned artists represent 22% of all CDs sold in the U.S., but you're spot on. That's not really encompassing that whole picture because of all the people that sell direct at that merch table and aren't using at venue and aren't keeping track of that. 
Right. And, and if you don't know, Disc Makers is maybe the largest manufacturer of CDs. So he certainly has some data that other people don't have as he kind of... Uh, breaks it down from his perspective, which is really fascinating. And but, and he also kind of brings up the story about you know the like we did in in our previous episodes, which is we have some people saying it's a revival, other people saying ah no, it is Adele. And so he kind of he he takes some assumptions here, and he says so. He's first I'm going to take two assumptions. He says number one, disc makers is the only factory that works directly with emerging artists, and and by far is the largest CD manufacturer as we were talking about. Uh, he says I, well we have nowhere near a hundred percent of that market, I'm going to assume the trends we are experiencing are a reasonable representation of the trends of the overall industries experiencing for DIY artists. Okay, that makes sense. And he says his second assumption is that looking at units manufactured for unsigned artists may not be the, the right metric, at least not the optimal metric. After all, we don't know how many of those discs that we've made for emerging artists are actually sold to fans at concerts versus sitting in a carton in a basement versus having been handed out as promos. So it could be any of those things. Yep. He says what I think might be a better indicator of how the CD market is trending for DIY artists is to look at CD order trends. That is the number of new orders and reorders combined for disc manufacturing that we receive at Disc Makers. Okay, this this way we're looking at both new CDs being manufactured and the number of times an existing CD title is sold enough units to be reordered. Okay, I like that. That is that is pretty clever. Yeah, it takes the emotion so, out of it and it's it just kinda does. that's what the data says. And and another point that jumped out at me here is that he mentions that CD sales among DIY artists were up in 2021. DIY, do it yourself, is not Adele. Mm-mm. And, and, although if you're a DIY artist, you'd love it to be Adele, but that is not the case. <laughs> that is not the case. Right, right. Um, so yeah. he said over t- over t- uh, so he said yes over the past 11 years there have been some notable declines which shouldn't surprise anyone right over this time period disc maker CD orders have declined by about 44 percent as compared to the industry declines of 82 percent that means that CD sales in the mainstream music industry declined about twice as fast as CD sales for unsigned artists okay yeah uh, but he says in my opinion there's cl- this is a clear result of the fact that streaming pays so little indie artists still have to rely on the revenue stream from physical media it's interesting how CD orders held relatively flat from 2011 to 2016 despite the industry's shift to download sales and streams during that time period, which points to the strength of the CD format as a revenue generator at concerts. After all, you can't sell a download or a stream at your concert. So, okay, he's setting the, he's setting the table yeah. for us. And then, and then he's, uh, so he, but he, he basically ends and he says, I th- that it's, it, is, is it a revival? Well, it's 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 healthier than it was, I think. But right. he says, I think the revival is really just around the corner. He says, well, one swallow does not make a spring. It feels a bit too <laughs> early to call it a revival. But this is really interesting. But the format uh, declines have certainly slowed way down, yeah. and they seem to want to start slowly rising, as implausible as that might have seemed just a couple of years ago. Yeah. And he said, this is really fascinating. He said, there is also some anecdotal evidence that the decline of the CD format is coming to an end. He said, my friend Sean Rutowski, who for many years ran a vinyl pressing plant called Independent Record Pressing, uh, about half an hour up the road from where he is, uh, mentioned that the recent trends he has noticed for CDs at retail, at mom-and-pop record stores, used record stores, etc., 
are starting to look like the trends he was seeing for vinyl way back in twenty in two thousand and eight, just as the format started slowly growing right. again. And he would know. And, so and he, just in full transparency, you know, we've talked about Sean Rakowski. He's mm-hmm. he's a friend of mine. We used to work together. Uh, he was head of sales for ADA when I was doing uh, we uh, ADA uh, work. Our offices were, you know, fairly close to each other, and we we. Um, you know, had a lot of interactions together and he's kind of my go-to guy on the vinyl side. And, and I, I dig that Tony and, and Mike, I'm sorry, Sean are friends. And I think this is a perfect way to kind of end this story because it, it just encapsulates everything. Is there a revival? Not really yet, but it's got some earmarks of uh revival right. and who would best to know uh, Tony Van Veen and Sean Rakowski. And I'll just kind of, uh, you know, end it by saying that this has been the best article I've read on on kind of CDs and what's been happening because it it takes into account other things besides Adele and he really looks into what's going on with physical goods, especially CDs. And in the marketplace, and as they pointed out, he said, you know, prices for used CDs in stores are rising. The selection is getting poor because more people are picking through the racks. Used CD players are harder to find at thrift stores. So nobody has really taken into account those things, which I think is fascinating. So we will continue to yeah. kind of talk about it, but it's it's Great a good, piece. it's a really interesting yeah. point to make. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So well, well worth uh, worth reading. So. Yeah, nicely done, Tom. And on that, and on that note, Jay. It's time to wrap up the show for crying out loud. It goes so fast. Yeah, it, it sure so does. Fast. It sure does. But I do want to thank our sponsors, the Music Business Association, Banzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Many thanks for their continued support. We could not do it without them. No, sir. And Jay, have a great weekend. Folks, thanks for listening in. We certainly appreciate it for uh, for you taking the time to check out Jay and myself and talk about the new music business. So on that note, we will say toodaloo, and we'll be back next week with episode number 83 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.